0: Let's look at Luke chapter 24. Uh, we'll read right now just verse 25, then I'm going to refer to several more verses that are in this uh, incident here in Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24 verse 25, Luke uh, records, and he said to them, these are the words of Christ, So foolish, uh, excuse me, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Look our Lord is chastising this men. Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. This idea that uh, very specifically we're going to start with is that, that, that uh gentlemen who gathered with me is that um Christ's desire is that we would uh hear the words of him and believe them that very much he would regard these words as his own words because they are and that we would be tasked with believing and it kind of sounds to me a lot like uh, at least very much the same sort of uh same sort of emphasis in John chapter 14 verse 1 where he tells his believers believe in God believe also in me he wants to be believed the power is in believing the power is in believing the words of our lord Um, He chastised them because they failed to believe everything the prophets had spoken concerning the coming Christ. He even calls specifically to one thing. In chapter 24, verse 26, uh, he, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? They had believed an incomplete version, an unbiblical version of who Christ is. Now, there's a danger. In this day and age, there is a danger of that. Now, I think the reason why we must begin, uh, it wouldn't, certainly wouldn't be uncommon in a, in a, in a Bible-preaching, gospel-believing church to talk about the power of belief to transform the human life from darkness to light. It wouldn't be uncommon to do that. The Bible speaks of this very, very clearly. But at the same time, I think we as believers, gentlemen, need to be reminded of the power of belief, that we are to believe God. And it's at this time, and, and I, I don't want to be lax about these things, and as I was praying over it, I said to myself, I, I really need to support belief because the things we're going through right now are directly co- governed by promises that God has given us. Like the fact that He will never leave us nor forsake us. Promises of Provision. We are many of us at this time, and I understand we 're still sheltered in our homes we are uh, we aren 't seeing a lot of others we are' it 's a very strange thing as brother Brian spoke of going yesterday and doing some just a, just a short time doing storm cleanup one of the strange things that were so many people had been around that many people in a month, and there's so many people there it was It was wonderful it was thrilling to be around this many people um, Folks, God's, and we have another round of storms coming through tonight, And but God's sovereign over storms. We won't lose a shingle unless God wills it. God's sovereign over diseases. We won't become sick unless God wills that we be sick. He is absolutely sovereign over these things. See, these are those promises, those those ever-expanding, clearly enunciated problem, uh, promises of our Father that oftentimes we don't fully believe as we should. It wasn't uh, man, that these men were unbelievers at this time. They did have an incomplete view of Christ. There's no doubt about that. But, but more specifically, they just simply had failed to pay attention and really believe those things that the Bible was clearly teaching. They could be us, Right? Many times in my life, I have failed to believe things that I needed to believe. Look, after that, Jesus teaches them everything that Moses and the prophets have said about the coming Messiah. He just literally takes the Scriptures and opens them up for these men. Now, part of me, just as a a run-the-mill believer, is very jealous of these gentlemen. The notion of walking on that road... And having my Lord expound the scriptures for me. Think about the preachers that we have, uh, we have uh, fawned over in our lives. The, the great sermons we've heard from pulpits. And that's just the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life until the next one comes around. And that's the greatest one. But here's the reality. Jesus preached of himself on the road to Emmaus. A sermon that's never been surpassed. It's like the Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that's never been surpassed. Everyone else tries to preach just a, just a tiny bit like it. He preached perfectly of Himself. Perfectly of Himself. They're on that road. And I'm, I'm jealous of these gentlemen. Um, the Word of God is made so apparent to these men. The thing about their response later that evening, after they realize it's Jesus. In Luke 24, He breaks bread they realize it's Him. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? So, so here's the idea that once again we're, we're we're kind of assembling concepts here. Here's the idea, gentlemen, is that when the scriptures are truly opened for us by the master, not a master but the master, when the when the scriptures are truly open for us, our hearts' response is to do what? But to burn. Their hearts burned. It was the the, the truth was so powerful they had a life-altering reaction. To hearing the Scriptures. To hearing it. Now listen. Not only was there a personal transformation of information. Concerning the Christ. Once they. Once he had put everything together for them. And their hearts burned. With the the influx of this knowledge. Once all this had happened. They were transformed by this. They understood Christ. And who He truly is more than they'd ever understood Him before. They they started to get Jesus in ways they had never gotten Him before. So, so we had an immediate, physical, uh, uh, emotional reaction to Him. Their hearts burned. A fitting emotional response, I call it. But there was also an action associated with it because in verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven... And those who are with them gathered together. The, look, the new understanding that they had—they've been gifted by God, by Christ. They're on the road. The new understanding, this gift of joy, that burning. Understand the the, the overflow of of the sweetest of emotions, Brother Brian, not fear, courage, uh, Brother Kyle, dedication, commitment, and all wrapped up in that burning of the heart right there this new understanding, this gift of joy the need to testify the desire to be with God's people could not wait until morning they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem they were going somewhere else and their new understanding took precedent over every other destination in their lives once that heart started to be on fire be on fire they had to go back to where, where the action was. They sought out the eleven. They had a desire to be with God's people. One of those things we're praying for now, right? We want when, When we are finally given the ability to come back together as a body of believers, to come together and be in close proximity to each other, we want hearts burning to do that, don't we? Um, we want it to be not like any old Sunday. We want it to be a Sunday we've never seen before. Because God's people have their hearts burning with the truth. Another thing we've talked about is the fact that one of the unforeseen benefits of a global pandemic has been just a flood of gospel preaching in forums just like we're doing now. Without people in person, but with hundreds more hearing it than per church probably than we're hearing it to start with. A, a almost online revival of the preaching of the gospel. What we are, we should pray for is, is that all that preaching now turns to burning of hearts that are ready to be back with God's people to mobilize for the mission that is hand, that is at hand. The new understanding, all this couldn't wait. Look, though it feels minor, the response of these men, I think, is a pattern to follow. pattern to follow. When the cross of Christ becomes the song of our heart. Look, as David writes in Psalm 40, verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise in our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We have a heart response to the truth and a responsibility to gather and share. So our response therefore to having truth poured out upon us is heartfelt, heartfelt, and the burning of the heart that it it stirs those deep passions. It stirs things that are that are real, that, that we can experience and at the same time that there is a desire to gather. And a desire to share. Now, as men and women of God's chosen church, we stand on the precipice of the great personal awakening of the Christian spirit, which smolders at first and then rages within us as we embrace the truth of Christ's words. Now, I want everybody to understand that. While, while Brother Brian and I talk about an emotional response and we understand those things are, those are cagey things, right? It's hard to nail down someone else's emotions. It's hard for me to tell Brother Brian how he should feel. I may can go to the Scriptures and say, Brother Brian, this is how we should act. But I can't say to Brother Brian, this is how you ought to feel about this. Those are very difficult things. Very difficult things. But now, what I believe is this, is that first and foremost, the right emotional reaction to Christ always flows from the Word of God and no other source. The Word begets the emotional response that it calls for. The Word does this. Throughout our lives, what the Gospel of Jesus Christ does is shatter our perspective and eternally alter our reality. My goodness, when the Word really starts to burn in us, I mean at salvation, brothers, and beyond, as it grows in us, as we see the seed that God has planted, salvation germinate and produce that that the wonder of the gospel in a person. When we see this, it changes our. We don't see the world the same way anymore. Our viewpoint becomes, as as Gossett Albert Moler called it, a Christian, a a, a Christ centered worldview. We don't see the world. We don't see life. We don't see death. We don't see money. We don't see family. We don't see marriage. We don't see anything that everybody else experiences. We don't see it the same way that the world sees it any longer. We've changed. We have to change. That is being, having a mind and a heart that has been informed by God's Word. Not just informed, but let's just be blunt. Formed. Shaped by God's Word. My perspective, shaped. And our reality is altered. Now, uh, these are fancy words, but, but they're very solid words. What it means is this is that what at one time I thought was illogical now seems not just plausible, but I trust in it. I believe now in, firmly believe now, in, in an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. And I do that because the Bible has shaped my mind, has altered my reality. What the world rejects we embrace because the word alters our perspective and it alters our reality because through it our eyes have been opened to the infinite glory of the matchless son of God the idea is this that now all of a sudden I see in ways I never saw before I see things that make associations not because I'm suddenly brilliant never have been never will be but I see things that make associations because I now compare them to the scriptures I now know when God is... I now can understand better. Excuse me, that's a better way to put it. understand better when God is working around me. Because I have the model of the Scriptures with which to compare it. The realization of what we have received through Christ Jesus, the redemption from our sins, justification in the sight of God, and transformation in a new creations ought to provoke an overwhelming response of joy that defines our lives. Now, there's where the speaker falls short. I would love to sit here and say that I'm at that point in my ministry, at that point in my Christian walk, that my life is defined by this joy that comes from trust. This joy that comes from from and from a deep knowledge, uh, Brother Kyle, of the nature and character of the God I worship. It doesn't yet. It's not defined by joy, but it ought to be, okay? It ought to be. And if yours isn't, okay, together on this journey, we seek that place in which our lives are defined by a a joy that we don't have to, Brother Brian, feign or fake. By a joy that's real. By a joy that's in the midst of a storm or in the midst of a disease. It's in the midst of loss or disappointment. There's still joy there. A joy that's not circumstantial. A joy that's eternal. Alright? It's exceedingly hard for me now to describe kind of the range of emotions that I'm dealing with in this sermon. I wanted so much. I stayed up so late and I worked so hard. I wanted this to be something so special, brothers. And I'm not sure I've made it to be honest with you. I'm doing the best I can with it. But there's this range of emotions that I don't want any of it to be fake, I want all of it to be real. Because I realize I'm dealing with emotion. And I realize there is no faith that is simply an intellectual faith. The the informed, true biblical faith in Christ involves both the intellect and the emotion. It's all together. Because that's what we are. In in being image bearers of God, we we are that. And so I, I want to do it rightly. Now look, typically, I, I told you, I shy away from the shallowness of purely emotional responses. And the reason I do that is because they are so fickle. What is bubbling over for Brother Brian is barely noticing it in Brother Kyle. And yet they're both my brothers. And I, I have to lead both and preach to both and, and be preached to by both. So, so while I understand that emotion is 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 a legitimate response to the truth of the gospel, there's no way in which I can say, I can tell you, well, this is how you have to feel today about this. I can't do that, so therefore I want to be, be cautious with my words. I think far too much has been made of how we feel about the truth of the gospel, or more specifically, man, how the gospel makes us feel. The slipperiest slope that we deal with is when we start to examine our own feelings for appropriateness. Did I do this the right way? Whenever we start to look at human work, we are going to be be oftentimes disappointed. The truth of Jesus Christ is airtight and inescapable. There's no doubt about this. This is not a maybe. Maybe. This is a cast in stone, forever truth. But now our feelings about it are mostly inconsequential, to be honest with you. If I don't don't like the gospel, that doesn't make it untrue. That just makes me hard-hearted, makes me stubborn, makes me short-sighted or unable to really understand what I'm judging. On the other hand though, our surrender... To the power of the gospel is not inconsequential at all. At times the depth of our repentance and the recollection of our sin can cause us to plunge into despair at the offense that we cause to our God. See, there's one of the problems right there with this idea of, of unleashing emotion without, without biblical restraint. Without biblical Brother Kyle definition. Is that sometimes... We, we will feel entirely too good about ourselves. And sometimes, and I've known a lot of believers who get so caught in ideas of condemnation, so caught in ideas that they are so bad that they are simply outside the grace and mercy of God. Now, that's, a, that's simply not right. But how many of us have felt that way? Many times. Many times. And so I, I want to address that issue As as clearly as I can. I I said, uh, at times the depth of our repentance and the recollection of our sin can cause us to plunge into despair at the offense that we have caused our God. A realization which can linger, can lead to lingering feelings of condemnation. That's where we are. Our heart's conclusion is that we are eternally unqualified because of our sinfulness. Now that's all the inner workings of the heart. It has nothing to do gentlemen with biblical truth. It has only to do with the fact that, that men love to judge. And we will readily turn that harsh judgment on each other. And oftentimes, we will turn that harsh unbiblical judgment on ourselves. On ourselves. We will declare that we are beyond hope. We will declare that the blood of Christ cannot wash away our sins. We'll do this. We'll decide this. Just as Adam and Eve decided right and wrong in the beginning, we'll do it for ourselves, independent of biblical truth. Look, the Word of God does this when we are confronted with its truth, God's glory, and the infinite death of sin. So it can be a response to the Word, right? Sometimes we can, as one gentleman put it one time, and I've heard this similar sentiment many times, was that when you turn the pages of Scripture and everything you see makes you weep. When every time you turn the page, you just see some other way you're failing God. You have failed God. The Scriptures can be difficult at times for us. There's no reason to shy away from them. But we understand, we, as wise teachers, we have to say, folks, there are going to be times that you're going to see things within the Scripture that you don't measure up to. That you simply don't measure up to and you know you don't. And it can be a cause for great consternation. Um, imagine this. Uh, um, in King, King Josiah's case, when uh, during his reign, and uh, it's described in 2 Kings chapter 22, the book of the law was discovered. And it's probably the book of Deuteronomy, probably was, we're not exactly sure. Uh, most scholars I've read believe it's the book of Deuteronomy. The chapter tells us, then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read the book, that's, that's verse 10 of, of chapter 22, then in verse 11, and Shaphan read before the king, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Here's Josiah, a, a prophesied and righteous king who hears the word of God read in a time in which, brothers, it was, it was nigh on extinct. It had been not heard in this way. It had been lost. And, and Josiah was a king of restoration, would restore a, a faithfulness to Israel. And when he hears this word read, when he hears the word read, he tears his clothes. He mourns. Look, this reaction is neither irrational nor superstitious when confronted with the majesty of God. Look, some of this feeling of of disqualification, some of this feeling of of, of condemnation is, Brother Brian, a rightful reaction to what we read within the Scriptures. We understand that all men and women without Christ Jesus, without the blood applied, are by definition condemned. By definition, cut off from the majesty and the glory of God. Cut off from the goodness of God. We understand that. That is absolutely true. So to react that way is neither irrational nor superstitious. It affirms the majesty of God. However, the Scriptures provide a more fitting and glorious response to the death of Christ for our, for our sins and the ongoing revelation of God through His Word to His people than just sorrow at our misdeeds. We can sit around and feel bad about the things we did in our past for the rest of our lives. And I would ask this, once we have repented of those things, what does that give us? I, I, I need the reminder, brothers, I need the reminder every once in a while what God saved me from. I need to go back and, and glance every once in a while to remember who I was when He found me and applied blood to my life. That He saved someone who was unworthy of salvation, who did not deserve it. I need that. That, that is the antidote to my own personal arrogance. I won't believe I'm very much if I look back and and see where He found me. Now that's absolutely fitting and proper to do that. There's no doubt. But there's a fitting and glorious glorious response to to, uh, this ongoing revelation of God through His Word to His people than just sorrow. After rebuilding the temple, another Old Testament uh, incident, at the conclusion of the Babylonian exile, the people of God... Newly returned to their land and the hearing of the word reacted with such sorrow at the sins of the past that they were inconsolable. Now the prophet Nehemiah, his duty was to indulge, was not to indulge this landslide of guilt, but to redirect it toward the informed joy of God. Literally, he says, I'm going to read here in just a second. But brothers, he says, put aside that and and embrace joy. In the midst of your sorrow, embrace joy. In the light of the Scriptures, he was teaching them to see their past differently. And in turn, see their Lord as loving lawgiver, as merciful judge, as willful deliverer, as kinsman redeemer, as everlasting joy, and as everlasting savior, and as infinite Lord. In Nehemiah 8.10, Then He said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the midst of a righteous grief, a grief in which they had offended God and they knew their nation had offended God and they'd been confronted with that sin, Nehemiah, in the wisdom of the Lord, says replace your grief with joy because there's strength and joy. God has brought sin to your attention. God is purging the land. God is preparing you to keep the sacrifices. God is doing in you the work that He intends to do. Be joyful. As believers They go your way. This is what He says. Go your way. Go your way. If, you're, if you feel like you're caught in condemnation today, replace this grief, this sorrow with joy and go your way. March boldly through every door opened by the gospel. Go through every door, enjoy the blessings of life, our families and homes. I can't tell you how many times in my life and in the lives of others, hearth and home, a house full of children, was no joy for dad or mom. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I understand you get on your nerves. I get that. I understand that, but all those blessings and all we think about is what we did ten years ago. Or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago. If you think about it, that's just, that's just a mistaken kind of, of, of logic, isn't it? He gave us this because He loves us. Go home and enjoy it. Go home and enjoy the blessings. He says, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Go home and enjoy what you've been blessed with. Our families and homes, the family of God that is most precious to us, and share those blessings with each other as Christ has delivered us to celebrate these things for His glory. Go home, it says go through every door that's open, go, go do what you're supposed to do, go the way God has sent you, enjoy what He's blessed you with, and share. And share, and be generous. Be generous. We must not, we cannot give in to grief, even if it is the lingering sorrow over our own specific sin. Look, through joy in Christ, we are able to face the challenges of living in an unredeemed world. Here's a reason we can't give in to condemnation because giving in to condemnation and giving into grief and giving into this lingering and lasting sorrow over things we cannot change, over things that have been repented of, that have been covered by the blood of Christ, we can't do that because it robs us of the power of the strength that comes through joy that we need to face this world where the attacks of the world breed chaos and fear, the joy of our Savior and God drives away terror. It leads to a powerful expression of the glory of the Lord in our everyday lives. When we don't walk in joy, in the strength that is joy, we rob ourselves of that expression that that displays the cross for the world. Look, the past is grievous for many of us, but the blood's more precious than the mounting sins of the wicked world. And more powerful than the clinging nature of our transgressions. Yeah, we we appeal to to something. The blood of Christ that is more powerful than all our sins. And to wash away those things that we never thought could be washed away. That will take away sins that we thought there was no pardon for. The blood removes their effect upon us. David tells us in Psalm 51 verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Look, David, follow his pattern. David petitions the Lord personally for mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord. No more right biblical statement can be uttered by someone who is caught in darkness than to say, O Lord, have mercy on me. David said it in Psalm 51. It works. Have mercy on me. He appeals to the Lord for mercy and appeals to the infinite love of the everlasting Savior. Look, by way of mercy, David surrenders his sin to the Savior as surely as we do. If you are born again today, you are born again because you repented of your sins and you believed the gospel. Because you surrendered your sin to the one who could deal with it because you had no capacity to atone for your own sin. Christ did it. He suffered and He died for the sins of His people of which you are one. His blood has now imputed to you righteousness and imputed to Him what? Your sin and your guilt. His blood has done everything for you. David appeals in the same way. Surrenders his sin to the Savior. And surely as we do know that sin is stricken by the blood of the righteous sacrifice. From the eternal memory of the everlasting God. And that's something we cannot forget. When the blood is applied to our sins. They are forgotten by God. You may not can forget them. But He has willfully done so. They're as far as the east is from the west. The God who knows everything. Has never forgotten a single detail. Never dropped an atom or forgotten a hair. Never let anything slip. The God who's never made a mistake. Has chosen to do what? But to forget your sin. But to blot it out of His very mind. The Apostle Paul preaches the same reaction to the truth of the Gospel. When he says in Acts chapter 22 verse 16. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on His name. Look. First one. Don't skip over anything. No one should wait. Do not wait. Do not think that these feelings will get better. Do not think that you'll have more confidence. Do not think you're going through a rough spot. Do not wait. If the scriptures say, and now why do you wait? Paul asks those questions, then your response has got to be, no, I will not wait. So whoever is within the sound of my voice, if you have been dealing with an issue... Like this, if you know that you do not know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, if He has never transformed your life from darkness to light, if He has never done that, if you've never been born again into a saving relationship with Christ Jesus, that has never happened, then do not wait. Do not wait. Postpone offering repentance. Do not postpone offering repentance. and Do not postpone belief in Christ who lived and died to take away the sins of the world. You are saved in that fashion through repentance and belief. Today men and women ought to rise up, not just get up. He says this, he says, and now why do you wait? Rise, rise, not just stand up. He's not just talking about standing up. This is, this is symbolic and deep and beautiful. Dude, and we ought to rise up, not just get up, but rise as one from the dead. Do not continue to pursue the dead ways and the bankrupt paths, which do not lead to eternal life. Throw those things aside. Rise today. Separate yourself from the path that goes to death and find today, through Christ Jesus, the path that leads to life. Abandon the ways of the dead world and embrace a living faith in Christ Jesus. Put aside superstitions Superstitions in any work that you can accomplish and do as Paul commands. Everything that needs to be done for our salvation was done at Calvary. Nothing can be done by you. Call on the name of Jesus today. Be immersed in His loving embrace where your sins will be washed away by blood so valuable that the cost of your crimes is paid in an instant. Call on the name of Jesus and He will apply the blood. Surrender to His truth. So that you might live in the strength of Christ's eternal joy. Obey the word when it says. And now why do you wait? That if you tarry, if you wait, if you postpone. Then why do you do so? What are you clinging to? That must be abandoned. What are you holding on to? That is condemning you. Turn your back on this world. And on its ways and on its hope. And turn your face to Christ. The only one who can save your soul. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach, Father God. I pray, Lord, that I have preached rightly, God. I pray that I haven't left anything out, but I pray, Father God, that I have preached in passion, but I've also preached, Father God, in truth of the scriptures, Lord. I pray, Father God, for those who are hearing today. I pray for anyone who's lost, Father God, that they would hear the gospel, Father God, repent of their sins and believe. They would cry out today in mercy to the one, Father God, the only one who can offer mercy, but the one, Father God, who has mercy to offer. Please, God, bless us today to seek, God, if we are, if we are lost, Father God, if anyone within the sound of my voice is lost, I pray, Father God, they seek You now while You are near. That they would rise up. They would go now and never tarry, Father God. They would repent of their sins. They would believe the Gospel. And the blood then, God, would be applied. We love You, Lord. In the name of Christ I pray. Amen.